The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. So as to live the rest of your earthly life no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. You have already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation, and so they blasphemy. But they will have to give an account to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead, so that though they have been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As Alan has made it a custom, let me also add my greeting to that of Lisa's. It's a, a privilege to be uh, leading in worship and especially today to have the honor of opening up the word together so we can explore it and hear God's voice in it. Would you pray with me? And now, gracious God, open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to all that you have for us in Holy Scripture today, in this letter that Peter wrote to folks like us in his world. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, last week in his sermon, Alan focused on Peter's invitation, his admonition to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. The text reads, in your hearts sanctify, which we learned means just make a special place for, set apart. In your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. And Alan invited any of us who have not done so to do that, to set apart Christ 
in our hearts. It got me thinking, and I realized that it was 50 years ago last month, in February of 1973, that I did just that. I'd grown up going to church. I'd learned the basic framework of the faith. I knew there was a cross, there was a communion table, there was a pulpit. I knew about the Bible and some of the better-known stories, but I hadn't really read the Bible for myself. I knew about Jesus and the disciples and the Apostle Paul. I was a senior in high school with four months until I graduated. I'd been confirmed. I went to church. But I had not set apart Christ in my heart. The previous fall, I had begun to attend Young Life meetings, and I joined a Bible study, and I began to learn about who Jesus Christ is and what that means for me. My leader asked me, he put the question this way, would I trust all that I knew of my life? And at age 17 and not really being a self-reflecting kind of guy, there wasn't really that much that I knew about my life, but to take all that I knew of my life and um, commit it to all that I knew of Jesus Christ and trust that to him. I knew even less about Jesus Christ. But I had been struck by the way that Christians live their lives, and I was not happy with, um, even though I seemed to have a lot going for me, I was missing something. And so I said yes, and I set apart Christ in my heart. Well, fast forward 50 years, I can say that what began that day in February has grown and matured, though I still have a long way to go. Far more now than my 17-year-old self, I have set apart Christ as Lord in my life. Over the years, as I've grown and read Scripture, I've found some resonances in the life of the Apostle Peter. And let me just say right up front, this is mostly not a good thing, the resonance that I've found. Of course, Peter laid down his nets and learned eventually what it meant to take up his cross. And in becoming a disciple of Jesus, Peter's life was completely reoriented, and that was true of mine even back then. Peter left home, family, and business to follow Jesus, um, I didn't leave all of that behind, but I left a significant amount. But here's where I really begin to identify with Peter. Peter was swift at speaking, slow at thinking, and even slower at learning. <laughs> Impulsive and outspoken, he was quick to commit without fully understanding. <laughs> Remember when Jesus walked on the water in Lake Galilee? It was Peter who got out of the boat to walk to Jesus. And then he realized what he had done, and he began to sink. And from his lips came what is undoubtedly the shortest prayer in the Bible. Lord, save me. 
and he had to get it up pretty quick because he was going down. When Jesus told the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane that they would all desert him by the end of the night, Peter said he would never deny Jesus, even if he had to suffer death. And we know how that turned out. And a little while earlier at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus told the disciples that he would undergo great suffering at the hands of the authorities in Jerusalem and be killed and then rise from death, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. And he told him that he must never suffer and die. Well, fast forward 50 years, give or take, in the life of Peter. And he's written a letter to encourage the faith of small groups of Christians who once were pagan, which is to say they were not Jewish, they were Gentile in background. And he wrote to them in a, a circular letter to five Roman provinces scattered across what is today modern-day Turkey. These new believers, we tell and we know from other sources, and, but the context of the letter, they're suffering periodic persecution because of their Christian commitment. They had not known the true God, had lived sinful, idolatrous lives, the life of their pagan neighbors, and now they were really trying to live differently, to set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts. So they withdrew from participation in certain aspects of their former life because they now considered them to be sinful. And we have seen this tension uh, with the tension between Christian commitment and the culture pretty much in every passage that we have looked at in this series on 1 Peter. We see it again today. It's clear from verses 3 and 4 in the passage that Christina read for us. You've already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. And then he continues, those around you are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation. This is a stark and powerful statement. Peter assumes the Christians receiving his letter have spent plenty of time in the pagan culture. The activities in the list refer particularly to the, what would have been practices of civic and religious festivals community celebrations, and social activities of business and professional guilds. This was life in uh, the ancient Roman pagan world. And so this is just descriptive of the social setting in which these Christians now found themselves. This is roughly but not quite, the, not quite equivalent of office parties, Friday after work happy hour, neighborhood block parties, all of this in the ancient world. Uh, except with, I think, a, a lot more excess. 
They're surprised, Peter writes, that you no longer join them in these excesses. Because these Christian converts now are exhibiting strange, surprising behavior. And their pagan neighbors just can't figure it out. Peter writes to warn them against the very real temptation of returning to the values of their old life. He characterizes these as human desires in the text, in contrast to the will of God. This is in verse 2, if you want to look in your bulletin. How is it that Christians will be able to do this, though? To live according to the will of God, rather than according to human desires, which are manifest in the culture all around. Peter's first century advice is instructive to us as 21st century Christians, as we experience the tension of being a culture minority. For many of us, the place where we spend our days, our school, our workplace, the grocery store, the golf club, the neighborhoods or the buildings where we live, most of the people around us don't have a Christian worldview. And they likely find at least some of our values and how we express them and our behavior to be strange, surprising. When I leave my house on Sunday mornings, I have a sense that I'm really the only person in the neighborhood that's not staying home or out walking their dog, that I'm dressed up in a suit on my way to worship. And so just as those in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor found the behavior of the recipients in Peter's letter to be surprising and strange, so it is with those around us. And just as Peter's audience took heat for no longer indulging in those things, just as their withdrawal from former pagan practices was interpreted as a judgment on those who continued in them, well, I think that that may be the case for many of us. How will Christians be able to live according to the will of God rather than to human desires? That's the question. And Peter exhorts his audience, his readers, to arm themselves with the same resolve and way of thinking to suffer as Jesus Christ had suffered. This is Peter writing this, and it's quite unexpected. He says the key to living faithfully is by focusing on Christ's suffering. The disciple who pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him and told him, you must never suffer. When you set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, something happens to you. It happened to Peter. He now saw things very differently than he once did. Over the decades, I can say it's happened to me as I have followed Christ for 50 years. And it has happened to you. And it is happening to you when we set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. 
But how is it possible to live faithfully to Christ in a culture when Christian faithfulness is seen as strange and surprising and judgmental? When inevitably there will be conflict. Peter's answer is found in verse 1. I've already mentioned it, but I invite you to actually look at the text in the bulletin. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. We'll get to that in a minute. So as to live for the rest of your earthly life, no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. And so this second verse about living our earthly life no longer by human desires is the result that we get if we do what the first verse tells us. That will make it possible for us to live faithfully. It's a little bit easier to see exactly what Peter means if you read the passage like this. He's saying, since Christ suffered in the flesh, therefore, arm yourselves with the same intention. Peter says that because living faithfully in our public life makes Christians look strange to those around us, we are to arm ourselves, get equipped. And we arm ourselves with what? The intention that is the same resolve to suffer as Christ suffered. Get ready. Now, this is not a command to suffer to go out and just look for opportunities to be miserable. But it is a command to be prepared to suffer. Because it seems like if you're a Christian long enough and faithful enough, one way or another, you'll suffer for it. Peter puts it in perspective. Because to follow the one who suffered is eventually going to lead to that. Now, I think we know that there are Christians in the world who suffer physically for their faith in today's world, just as there were in the early uh, time uh, Christians who were put to death, even. But many more, including P these churches in Asia Minor, are not physically suffering necessarily or facing death, but they are Facing, ostr facing being ostracized. Um, they're facing social isolation because they act faithfully in public. And this is our primary context today. If we act faithfully in public, somebody's going to notice it. And so we need to be armed, equipped, with this resolve of Jesus Christ to suffer if and when it comes to that. Why? Because of the example of Christ's suffering. But even more than that, because of what Christ's suffering accomplished. Today's passage is an is part of an extended claim that Peter is making, a claim that he began last week, or in the, he, began, he didn't begin it last week, but we find the beginning in the passage that we looked at last week, what Alan preached. And the core truth was this. You may remember it. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, 
the righteous for the unrighteousness in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection makes it possible for these formerly pagan Gentiles to have a relationship with God. Christ's death is final, and it brings all rebellious humanity into right relationship with God. It's, it's why we have that same right relationship with God. But Peter understands this victory in a cosmic sense. And so, last week he continued, contending that in Christ's death and resurrection from the dead, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God patiently waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Even the evil spirits who were behind the most wicked generation of human beings to ever live, the ones who in the days of Noah led God to flood the earth and start over with just Noah and his three sons and their respective wives, that's eight. This is the scope of Christ's suffering. This is the reason why First century Christian converts in Asia Minor and 21st century American Christians are compelled to arm ourselves with the intention, the resolve to suffer as Christ suffers because there is cosmic power in what Jesus did, what he accomplished. And there's this same power available to us when we suffer on behalf of our faith in Christ. And Peter is inviting us to get ready to do that, to arm ourselves. Now, certainly not every Christian ends up suffering in some kind of a deep, profound way. Not the way that we know some suffer and have suffered. But for those who do suffer for Christ, there is knowledge of Jesus in a way that's not otherwise possible. And so that in itself is something really remarkable. I have known relatively little of suffering in my life compared to many I've known. If I'm honest, much of the suffering I've experienced, I think, has probably been of my own making. In that sense, I, uh, I'm not the person to bear personal testimony to all of this and the power of suffering, but everyone who is a human being suffers at some point in life, whether it's physical pain or emotional isolation uh, or, or something. And a lot of common wisdom will tell you that avoiding your suffering will only make it worse. Those who suffer and are not completely undone and overcome by it have a quality of strength that really sets them apart. They're different because of it. 
And the suffering that I've experienced for being a Christian has in the main come in the form of social awkwardness and rejection from circles where eventually I've come to know we're not where I really wanted to belong anyway, even though they were pretty enticing at one time. But I am aware. I'm aware of and to some degree a part of what might be called the global community of suffering. I've had the privilege of knowing, of having fellowship with, of caring for and praying for and loving Christians in parts of the world who have suffered and continue to suffer because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. In three trips behind the Iron Curtain to the former East Germany prior to the wall coming down in 1989, I met numerous pastors and their families who had this similar story. Their brilliant, high-achieving children were completely barred from any path to education beyond high school. I think of the children in this congregation and how, how important college is and, and just what a focus that is. And these pastors' children were denied admission to any university. That's how the German system worked. No reason. But there was an unspoken common thread that everyone knew. Their fathers were pastors. In spite of valedictory academic accomplishment, they were denied the possibility of a university education. Can you imagine that in your family, just the tension that it would cause, the temptation for there to be resentment, or just crushing shame, and the fact that you can do nothing to control this arbitrary barring of really uh, a future. Nancy especially, but I along with her know many people in Egypt and Syria. To be a Christian in these countries is to be a minority and to experience degrees of suffering as a consequence for being a faithful Christian. We have friends who serve as career missionaries. For the most part, their lives are not endangered, but they, there are innumerable micro-sacrifices that they make. What, from my perspective, are sacrifices they see as just part of normal everyday life. I don't know what it means for you to follow Peter's instruction to arm yourself with the same intention or resolve to suffer in light of Christ's suffering. But I do know that you will grow closer to Christ because of that. I know that because I have a closer relationship with Jesus, because I'm a part of this global community of suffering in a very small way. And anyone who suffers in the context of their relationship to Jesus will know him in a more intimate way.
Suffering equips us to live within a society that is not sympathetic to Christian faith. There are some puzzling verses in today's passage that I'm not going to skip, but I want to just speak to them briefly. First, in verse 2, whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. This doesn't mean that sin goes away, that those who um, follow Christ, uh, you know, don't have to worry about that anymore. It simply means that if you choose to be prepared to suffer for your faith in Christ, and if you're prepared for this, you eventually suffer, this means that you have died to your old way of life. You really have left it behind. So, sin being the old way of life. It's the best evidence that you are no longer living according to the ways of the unbelieving world. And then in verse 6, when Alan said that this was the passage, he said, I want to know what you're going to say about proclaiming even to the dead. (laughs) Well, this statement, in the words of a commentator I greatly respect, is extremely obscure. (laughs) I don't know what it means. We could spend lots of time, and I've read lots of speculation. Not every passage or little snip in uh, Peter's letter is readily understandable, but we can be sure that they would have made sense to Peter's audience. And that reminds us that we're not reading a letter that was written to us. There's a 2,000-plus-year chronological gap, and there's a completely different cultural context. But that being said, the central meaning of what Peter is writing is abundantly clear. Just as Christ suffered unjustly but was vindicated by God in the resurrection, and there was great power in all of that, so it is with Christians who are now enduring unjust abuse. We can look forward to being vindicated and so are called to follow Christ's example. One last statement causes us to scratch our heads. In verse 7, we read, the end of all things is near. Well, immediately we think in terms of time. The end of the world. For Peter's audience, it could have meant that also, since most early Christians experienced or expected Christ's return to come within their generation or the next. But it also could mean something else, and likely did. The Greek word for end, telos, can also mean goal. Think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of humanity? It's not talking about time. It's talking about what's our goal. And Peter very possibly is making a play on words, and he's using it in kind of both senses. As we think about the return of Christ being soon, at the same time, the goal the end of the redemptive process that Christ's death and resurrection accomplished is near completion. This cosmic, pow- cosmically powerful change that 
he, that Christ's death and resurrection has brought in the world. Regardless of how this statement is to be understood, the application is clear, and it follows. We need to be serious, literally, of sound mind and disciplined in our prayers. There's no shortage of mania when it comes to speculation about the end. You probably know this. You may not know that this has been true of every age since the time of the apostles that, Peter, that people have become preoccupied with when the end is coming and what it's going to look like. But Peter's exhortation is to serious, clear-headed thinking, to spiritual discipline that facilitates the life of prayer. This is the very opposite of any kind of end times fanaticism. But most importantly, Peter concludes, above all, maintain constant love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. This is not some mere moralistic statement. This is the foundation on which Christians must build our life together if we're going to be able to be faithful, if we're going to be able to arm ourselves in the context of a hostile world around us. There are plenty of characteristics about my personality that those who know me uh, are not particularly fond of, let's say it that way. And uh, I return the favor. But that doesn't mean that I don't love them. And because of the love that I have and the love that, pe that people have for me, that's what, that's what really the only thing that matters. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. We will not be successful in living our lives by the will of God together. We will not be able to resist human desires apart from loving one another as a community of faith. And the Greek word that Peter uses is one of those words that many of us know, even without any language expertise, agape. That great word for love. What does this uniquely Christian form of love entail? It goes on. It means self-giving for another as opposed to selfish, not caring. The opposite of Christian love is not hate, it's indifference. Peter expands on the implications of this agape love. You can see it in verses 9 through 11. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. And whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies. All this so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ.
Friends, when all is said and done, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If we are faithful to Christ, we will find ourselves in loving relationship to those other than ourselves. That's the meaning and the power of Christ's death. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To live as followers of Jesus Christ is then to live facing outwards, exhibiting gracious hospitality, humble service, redeemed speech, all empowered by God. Here at National Presbyterian Church, we organize, organize our life together using four categories. Many of you know these, worship, grow, serve, and care. Here we are in worship. That's one of them. It's wonderful. Many of us take advantage of Christian growth opportunities through groups like Sunday school or small groups or through discipleship opportunities in other places around the city, through daily uh, practices of reading scripture and praying. And all of this activity ought naturally to lead us to serve others through some sort of caring ministry or mission. And when we serve others, well, we encounter suffering, and perhaps we have to sacrifice ourselves. In other words, to serve others is one of the very best ways to arm ourselves to live as Christ lived, to counter the human tendency to avoid suffering, to run from it, to embrace the way of Jesus Christ, who obediently moved toward suffering. Peter emphasizes that faithfulness to Jesus Christ, the living as Jesus lived results in lives that face outward, expressing in love towards others. Indeed, this is always the goal of our inward life. It's to have an outward expression. That's why we strive for discipline in prayer. As Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life on behalf of the many. What a remarkable letter to come from the Apostle Peter. We know how he started. Friends, there's hope for us in this. There's a trajectory that we're on towards being faithful, even in a culture that is not hospitable to our commitment. Let us pray. Gracious God, I think of those who even now suffer and pray that they might find in that suffering a, an identity, a communion with Jesus and there might be greater intimacy because of that. And Lord, in all our lives, move us to 
above all, love one another, and for that love to come to expression in the service of the gospel, the power of salvation to bring the world, to reconcile it to you. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.